Yeah, we can notice those nervous systems as a, <clears throat> the unexpected and sometimes unwanted comes in. Just taking time to settle in your bodies, in your body.
So for some of you that may be new to uh, this particular meditation practice or, or, or perhaps familiar with the meditation practice and um, newer to retreat, you know, there's this thing called the Dharma talk. You know, so, so I just want to say a few things about the Dharma talk. Um, and honestly, this is really based on my own experience over 40 years of, of listening to, of having the incredible privilege to, um, of receiving Dharma talks from teachers, my teachers, different teachers on retreats. So the, the Dharma talk is completely designed to support you in your practice. That's, that's one thing. Um, the other thing is that it, it draws on the teachings of the Buddha. It's really, it's how these teachings have been passed down, mostly verbally. Uh, and as a matter of fact, the, the Buddha's teachings weren't even put into words, lang um, written form, um, for over 200 years. Now, if you have that kind of scientific analytical mind, you're going to say, hmm, what about that translation? It's a good question. Uh, so here, here's the invitation. This is what I love that the Buddha is known to have said. See for yourself. No, he said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. So the invitation with a Dharma talk is actually to just see, you know, what, what resonates for you or what calls to you. And what doesn't, if you can, just leave it aside. Just leave it aside. Um, you know, teachers will teach through their own personality, through their own examples, but the, the quality of the teaching really is, is drawing on um, some of the basic teachings of the Buddha. So I offer this for you, uh, for your own liberation through your own, in your own practice, in your own life. So just to, you know, just to follow that, you know, just take a moment inside with yourself and what, what do I want? Ask yourself, you know, what do I, what do I really want in my life? What do I most want? Well, maybe we would have different answers, but I, I think of the, the beautiful list that we made uh, last night, these qualities of acceptance, patience, kindness, compassion, peace. It usually doesn't, you know, end up like I want, you know, a brand new house or uh, a new car or things. Doesn't mean we don't want things or things don't bring some kind of gratification. But ultimately, when we relate to, to life, often you'll hear the response inside yourself, some, some version of peace, loving kindness, freedom from suffering, well-being in the heart, mind. So how do we, how do we get there? Sounds good. Seems kind of elusive sometimes, or other times really impossible. So here's what um, Anthony DeMello said. Some of you may be familiar with his writing. He's He's passed on. He was a Jesuit uh, sage, really, but in the Catholic tradition. He wasn't so easily accepted there, I think, because of his radical understanding. Um, he says, I was neurotic for years. I was anxious and depressed and selfish. Everyone kept telling me to change. I resented them, and I agreed with them, and I wanted to change, but simply couldn't no matter how hard I tried. Then one day someone said to me, don't change. I love you just as you are. Those words were music to my ears. Don't change. Don't change. Don't change. Don't change. 
I love you as you are. I relaxed, I came alive, and suddenly I changed. He also said, um, maybe not to have this verbatim, but uh, freedom is in the unequivocal, wholehearted, complete acceptance of the inevitable. And many of us may be familiar with this sage, Sufi poet Rumi, said this, this human being is a guest house, every morning a new arrival, a joy, depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently, violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. The end of that poem, be grateful for whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Well, really? <laughs> It's a great poem. We often read this poem, and uh, but be grateful. Mm, hard sometimes, isn't it? It's hard to be grateful for what we can't stand, what we want to get rid of. So here's one uh, could be understood as a, as a is comforting. You know, it took the Buddha, as they say, many lifetimes to get awakened. So maybe we can relax a little in our practice in that sense of, as I was speaking about earlier, just with the push of I have to get somewhere. Doesn't mean we, bring, we don't bring effort to our practice or show up. And we all know just in the short amount of time we've been together, it takes some effort. You know, even on a weekend retreat, even on a day retreat, it takes effort to, oh, go back, go back to the breath, or go back to sitting, walking, bringing, bringing our attention to practice. It really does take some, some effort and diligence, patience, commitment. So I'd like to explore the, 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 these two aspects. It's often referred to as two wings of the bird, one bird in and Buddha Dharma, which is a, the wings of wisdom and compassion. And in particular, compassion, how, as it arises, both, both naturally and, uh, and it's also cultivated, also can be cultivated. So in terms of, of wisdom, is wisdom cultivated? Well, practice is cultivated. W wisdom shows up through the practice. You know, insights come based on causes and conditions. The, the Buddha did speak about three characteristics of life that, um, that aren't particular to any individual, but particular to being alive, being human. And these factors, when we, when we meet them directly in our experience, they, they open our attention to, to wisdom. They open our attention to... Mm, the, the freedom of being with the truth of life. So in these three characteristics, one of them, what we discover, and, and you may have noticed this just in your meditation practice, the lack of control. You know, you have the intention to sit still or to be, you know, to not move around much in your practice, because actually that moving and distracting, um, you know, can, can kind of keep us unsettled. You know, so just even in this moment, just letting yourself kind of settle into your, your posture. Just settle in. You don't, you don't have to wiggle about. Just relax, be present. So what happens even when we have that intention in our practice? Okay, I have the intention to meditate and to bring my attention back to the breath or back to sound. And we can realize very quickly that even with that intention, the mind has a life of its own. So we, we start to discover one of these characteristics of impermanence, 
another way to to relate to that is we just realize everything's changing. We don't really have control over that. Now sometimes that seeing that can feel rather frightening. It sort of shakes up our sense of control, sense of order even. You know, and it's not like what's being said here is, okay, you know, so you're driving a car. Isn't there some control there? There's some hands are on the wheel. Car goes right when you want it to turn right, left when you want it to turn left. Must there's something wrong with your car? Yeah, in a in a mundane way, in an uh, ordinary way, we use agency and will to orchestrate our lives. That's true. We don't need to argue with that. That's true. But we also know what could be true is we, we have the intention to drive our car to a certain place and anything could happen. Anything could happen in that time period. And undoubtedly, every single one of us in this circle has a story about something simple like that. Something simple in a day where you had an intention for something. And this could be years ago in your memory and something happened that completely changed that completely changed that simplicity, whether it was a car accident or a phone call of a loss, something sudden, unexpected, unwanted. You know, we, we, you know, we practice today with just even the sound of, oh, the recording started, you know, recording stopped. You know, I don't know about the rest of you, but, you know, my system was just like, whoa, I didn't expect it, you know, it's it kind of a shock. You know, there's a reverberation in the belly area, talking about the nervous system. You know, so suddenly the mind connects, oh, that's, you know, maybe that's unpleasant, or you recognize, oh, that was, you know, you know what that was. So that's a little settling. And then maybe it takes a little bit longer for our bodies to settle down, even though the mind recognizes it, recognizes it that it's past, it's, it's not a threat. But it takes a little while to, for the body to to settle from that kind of disruption. So th this is what our bodies are living in every day, this, this constant change. You know, our, our nervous systems are impacted by that. They respond, threat, non-threat, or neutral, kind of check out when it's neutral. So this is why you know, the Buddha spoke as this one as the primary characteristic this impermanence of change, because it's, it's so profound. One, because it's true. I mean, in the way we know it's true is not some kind of intellectual pursuit of that. It's, it's direct experience. Things change. It's that simple. You know, all you need to do is slow down a little bit, pay attention to your mind, your body, your heart, and you see it. You know? So the second characteristic, uh, they're not necessarily linear. They're, they're interconnected. So the Buddha said, because of this, you know, because of this change, constant change, uh, you know, we're, we're, it's unsatisfying. You know, it leaves us, it can leave us quite unsettled. Or it's, uh, this, the, the translation, the, the word in Pali is dukkha, you know, this unsatisfactoriness of life. So sometimes when people approach Buddhism from an intellectual level, they're not, familiar with practice, I've heard people say like, wow, that's so depressing. That's so negative. You know? The Buddha wasn't saying uh, that there's no joy in life, or, there, or that there aren't things to cultivate. He was just simply saying, pay attention to constant change when you can. You know? Practice and slowing down helps. And just notice the response to it. Mm -hmm. So what happens with that unsatisfactoriness, we, we, we really recognize, okay, so there isn't control, there's, and that's unpleasant. Where do we ground? Where do we land? What, what can help, help us? I think the example in the sharing today, all of them actually, but you know, the first one was just poignant in the sense of just what we are dealing with culturally in terms of the pandemic. Oh yeah, all this change, and then, you know, it's we want it to change, or maybe most of us do, or we're, we're 
you know, looking for some change where it feels more safe, you know, in our world, then what's that like? How do we adjust to that? Oh, it's, it's all in this flow of change. You know, and you, you often hear people say, well, we're never going to get back to normal. We're never going to get back to the way it was before. Well, of course we're not because it's, that's not here anymore. It's, it's what's now, whatever that is. It's what's in this moment. So you begin to get a taste of the courage it takes to just to show up, you know, or to be willing, to be willing to pay attention in this way, you know, to come out of the, the, the mind that believes we can control life and to drop into this direct experience of the nature of life these characteristics, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness because of the impermanence. You know, we can't, another way to say that is, no matter how hard you try to keep what's pleasant, to preserve it, to, to root it, and there's, you know, a zillion self-help books that'll tell you how to do that. But is, is, it, is it completely and totally reliable? Can, do those results always happen in that way? No. Well, that doesn't mean those books aren't useful. You know, I have a lot of them on my shelf that I've never really read. I don't know about you, but um, they're compelling. You know, it's, 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 it's compelling, isn't it? Someone's going to promise, like, prolonged happiness if you just do these seven steps, or five, or ten. Again, they may be helpful in the moment. I'm... I'm aware I'm using some sarcasm here to make my point <laughs> that we can't avoid suffering, we can't avoid difficulty, we can't avoid some of the bigger things in life. So let's say we can't avoid, oh, the you know, recording has stopped, cuts into our meditation. Well, we also can't avoid sickness, illness, death, aging. You know, these are, these are factors in, of life. These are human conditions that, that we meet at, at any age, really. You know, as you, as you get older, you can face um, illness more or loss more in terms of the body declining or even in one's community, more people um, as they get older, die. <laughs> um, but that doesn't mean, oh, that's just for when you're older. You know, I remember when I first started practicing, I was young, I was in my 20s, and um, remember hearing the teaching that, you know, these are recollections that we should recollect and reflect on daily. I am of the nature to become old. I am of the nature to uh, become sick. I am of the nature to die. And it wasn't really something I was reflecting on every day. But sometimes you can be young and have had a lot of loss in your life, or you might be dealing with a chronic illness. And so that is your primary reflection. And the Buddhists, you know, again, encourage these reflections not to depress us, but to, to, to meet the truth of life. And can we meet that with some loving kindness, with compassion, with understanding? So one of the understandings there is this third characteristic. So we have the characteristic of the impermanence as a characteristic of life, the unsatisfactoriness in relationship to it. And the third is the selfless nature of life. So one concrete example is, particularly when we go through a lot of loss, sometimes we can be very, very focused on our own particular loss. It's very understandable, it's human. I've had a lot of deaths this past year. Actually, ironically, none of them were COVID-related, but cancer, friends, some relatives, just been a lot. And, you know, I'm aware that goes through my mind, like, oh, I've had a lot of loss, you know, I've had a lot of loss. You know, it can maybe, sometimes it can veer into a little self-pity, but more, mostly it's just like self-compassion, because, you know, it's, you know, it, the heart is being called to, uh, to show up for 
what that feels like, you know, being human in these relationships that I care about. Love, you know, it takes, it takes some strength, some sustenance really to meet these losses and some compassion. Another reflection is, ironically, because it feels so personal, and on one level, in the you know, relative level, it is personal. Like I had another friend say, wow, I haven't had any losses this year in terms of deaths. You know? So it is personal. But on a much bigger level, it's not, because we all face this. You know? And sometimes that reflection of, ah, you know, it's, this is part of the human condition. It's actually, it can be comforting. What do I mean by that? Well, just sort of rest in that universal truth. That universal truth that we are subject to these things. It, it, can, it can give rise to a sense of compassion, not just for ourselves, but others who may be going through the same thing. Or, or worse, if you will. I want to be a little careful about that comparing mind. It's more really a spaciousness of heart that can come with this understanding of uh, what's referred to as selflessness or not-self or um, I like to refer to it as the complete interconnectedness of things. This is something that um, Catherine spoke to earlier today. And that sense of joy that could come up with that, for sure. So these characteristics give you know, the reflection on them, again, not so much intellectually, but direct experience, gives rise to wisdom. It's like, oh, okay, here's the inevitable that Anthony DeMello was talking about. So what's the relationship to it? You know, am I going to fight it? Am I going to personalize it and try to fix it? Blame myself if I can't fix it? No, that's, it's kind of creating a whole other layer of suffering, isn't it? And yet, no, does it end there? You know, is that, it's like, hmm, it sounds good, but how many times do I feel spun out and caught in whatever uh, response or reactivity there is in the mind and heart? I think we can use Buddhist practice to, to, to blame, and it's really a misuse of the practice. You know, this idea that, somehow we shouldn't suffer. If we're really practicing well, we should just feel that peace and equanimity with everything. You hear it in the teachings, you know, be present with what is, open to what is, rest in awareness. You know, so then, you know, yeah, and you know, you can get some traction with that, you know, a little bit, sitting on the cushion. Maybe, maybe you have a whole, you know, meditation practice where you feel a lot of that. Please don't worry in hearing me say that. That's not your experience. You know, for most people, it's, it's not. It's glimpses. You know, as I said, the Buddha took um, so, so many years, so many lifetimes to become awakened. So if we have that expectation, we're, we're going to suffer. And yet, we can apply ourselves. How, how can I meet this? So this idea that somehow thought should disappear or emotional reactivity should disappear, it's really a misunderstanding of practice. That's, that's, not, that's not what happens, actually. If anything, the more you open, the more you're going to feel. You know, in a way, I'm sort of glad None of my teachers said that to me at the beginning of practice. You know, because what drove me into practice, what often drives people into practice is, is a kind of um, dissatisfaction with, with life, with the mundane aspects of life. Many of us experience that when we're children. You know, just like, what is this all about? Yeah. Hmm. You know, so, we, so we we're drawn to practice for the freedom from that spinning out all the time. But if the idea in our head is that the spinning out is just, the, you know, as we practice, it's just going to stop. Mm, not so. And so, if that's the truth, then why are we sitting here and what's the point? Well, you know, the, the middle way is that bringing mindfulness, loving kindness, and compassion to our experience does indeed actually mitigate it. 
So we may find that we spiral into the same cycles of whatever, you know, whatever that replay is in your mind. You know it. I know it for myself, whether it's, you know, sense of over-responsibility or guilt or some, some version of I'm not good enough, something, something that's not acceptable. So this, this radical acceptance is coming towards that experience when we talk about this emotional life with the wisdom of this is what's happening right now. This is what's present. If we can extract or not run with this is me, this is my, this is mine, and because of that I'm responsible for it and I have to do something about it, that's quite different than can I be present? And so being present, what's that like? So let's just say you, you had a fight with your beloved. You, know, you, had, you, know, you had a fight with your beloved this morning or last night. Or, you know, it's so humbling, like you know, you're in the middle of doing your practice and here's this fight and you're not so happy with you know, your own responses or whatever. Can I slow down? Can I just be present with, oh, what's, what's here? What's present in the body? Oh, tightness in the chest, burning. What's that? Oh, there's anger, there's anger present. And the mind goes in story, telling a big story about it, you know, reviewing it, how I'm right and they're wrong. Oh, come back to the feeling. Oh, what's, what's the feeling like? Ah, oh, it's unpleasant. So we can not only notice the feeling, but notice the relationship to it. Is there, is there kind of a rejecting of it or pushing away or maybe an over-identification with it? Like, yeah. This is right. You know, I'm right. And you know, when I'm right and the other is wrong, then we, we can't really see either of ourselves very clearly. We only see that position. You know, when, when the other is wrong, everything about them is what we think is wrong, if you understand what I'm saying. Like that, that wrongness is everything. Now, let me just be clear. I'm not saying that people aren't responsible for their behavior. I am not saying that at all. I think if anything, practice, you know, brings us clearer to a sense of ethical conduct or commitment, you know, and if, if there's been a wrong, then, then is there a skillful way to respond to that? Well, sometimes not even staying around that person as a response or another time it might be um, to find a way to communicate. This is one of the things, you know, we just lost Thich Nhat Hanh, as all of you probably know, a Vietnamese beautiful teacher and monk. And um, this is a, was a big part of uh, Thai's teaching. I, I was on a three-week retreat with him, very, very blessed to be on this retreat, uh, you know, 25, almost 25 years ago, it was in the States, and um, a lot of his teaching was really around the Sangha, you know, being together in groups and practicing, and, um, and he lived in community with, with uh, uh, mostly the monastics, but also lay people, and, you know, there was a lot of teaching that he offered around working through conflict. Sangha was, was hugely important. And when I was on that retreat, somebody asked him the question. He spent a lot of time in um, the, well, when I was practicing with him, it could have been before this too, but in the 80s and early 90s, he was doing quite a bit of uh, retreats for American Vietnam veterans, specific, specifically for those veterans. And somebody raised their hand at this retreat I was on it and said, um, how, how can you do that? You know, how can you, you know, teach loving kindness or be around American vets when they killed, they came into your country and, and killed your people? And he just looked with this, you know, warmth on his face and he said, he tilted his head and he said, my people killed your people too. You know, that was his answer. There was this deep wisdom and compassion that understood 
that people were suffering deeply with remorse and pain from being at war directly in combat. And there was a generosity in his heart to, to attend to that and clearly to offer forgiveness. You could not lead a retreat like that if your heart didn't have forgiveness in it, forgiveness and understanding. So you might say, well, you know, I'm not Thich Nhat Hanh, I'm not Martin Luther King, I'm just me. You know, but what's possible? What's possible in the human heart? I mean, we heard an example today of just that, you know, the story of just shifting from uh, going with the aversion. Who doesn't identify with, oh, that the noisy construction? I mean, it's unpleasant. It's really unpleasant. Or, you know, maybe there are some times when it's happening. You know, I've had some construction in my house, I said, and, you know, sometimes I might have to say, well, could, could you not do this part right now because I'm, I'm having to make this phone call I need to hear. It's not like we're not negotiating sometime. You know, but that, that wider space of can I open to the difficulty? Can, can it be the Dharma mindfulness bell? of acceptance. This is what's happening. And so in that first opening, we're opening to our reaction to what's happening, to opening to unpleasant, opening to aversion. This this is not a practice of like spiritual bypassing, like, oh, I really want to feel, you know, generous and kind and peaceful and accepting. So therefore, um, Every time I feel a speck of anger, I'm just going to jump to trying to feel those other things. Well, that's called spiritual bypassing. It really actually takes courage to meet our direct experience openly. And it also takes compassion because we can understand, okay, this is a, you know, this is a feeling, this is a thought, this is a feeling, this is what's happening. It's not mine, not me, but it hurts, doesn't it? Like when we feel it, it hurts. Or when we're really caught in that sense of us and them, or, or, or let's just say it's, it's, uh, it's even with ourselves. Like so many people have, challenge, have challenges with sleep. So sure, in this group, some of us do. And if you do, you know, what's your relationship to that? Sometimes there can be such um, self hatred around it, you know, or struggle. So there's someone I work with that really, really struggles with sleep and feels so defeated, so overwhelmed. It's like, can we just, can we just turn some compassion towards that feeling, towards the feeling of fear, frustration, overwhelm? And if we just notice our nervous system, this happens hundreds and hundreds of times in the day, this response to our world. And it can change in an instant. And can we be open to that? I mean, the last retreat I taught, the example I gave was, it was just during the snowstorm we had here a few weeks ago. And there was, um, and I was just feeling so much love and mm, sort of joyful feeling, you know, being together in community as I am with all of you. And I, I brought my dog outside for her morning constitutions and I could hear the plow coming down the, down the street. And I, I was just filled with love and gratitude for the, I call him the plowman. You know, it's not even someone I know personally, but that was, you know, doing, you know, doing this wonderful thing, you know, just like, clearing our roads like there's so much human beings do for each other that's that's good you know that's caring and so my heart just felt so much love and gratitude as beautiful feelings we, we can all know that those feelings are they're sublime they lift us up and so my dog maddie she's about two years old just in her nature she has this protective quality in her even though we've done a a lot of good job training. No, this is part of her instinct. So I can feel her kind of tense up as the truck comes down, 
road. She's on a leash. You know, and I kind of know what's going to happen, so then I feel myself tense up. You know, she starts to bark. She, she has to protect me. So I'll try to get her to calm down. But what happens in my nervous system is like, oh, suddenly that feeling of like joy and openness and love is gone. And there's some real contraction around what's happening. Okay, so there's noticing that. Don't need to judge it. That would be extra. It's just what's happening. It's just the next moment. Nonetheless, not so pleasant. Can't say that I really felt lovingly welcome of it, but here it is. Cooperation. That cooperation with the inevitable. So if you can soften into that and notice like, ah, oh, not liking. You know, or just notice the, you know, the way I relate to the, the animal. You know, she's just being herself. You know, so how do I, how do I help her calm down? best of my ability. And this is life. Simple example, but it's like that, isn't it? It changes. So, you know, the task in a way, if you will, this task of finding peace, the path of liberation, is meeting these changes without over-identification and without trying to get rid of or bypassing. Mingyo Rinpoche described it as, you know, that awareness is like a river. You know, the river flows and whatever is in that river is, uh, we, we're either like trying to, you know, grab onto it or get rid of it, but it flows. Life flows like a river. Can we you know, not get over-identified, or if we notice that we are, maybe that's when we call up compassion. It's like, oh, this hurts. I can see what's happening in my mind. It's, you know, I want to unhook from it, but somehow I just can't. So that's a great opportunity for some self-compassion. It's just like this right now. It's okay. Maybe hand on your heart, belly. It's just okay. No, or if we notice like, ah, you know, we're also just, we have this idea that peace is, you know, the definition of peace is uh, when difficulty isn't happening. So we're like leaning really far away from the difficulty, just trying to avoid it. No, there's suffering in that too. So what happens if we come just into that flow of river without getting over-identified or trying to push away? This is where liberation lives. So this is, uh, there's a practice, and you know, we'll probably continue with some of it this evening too, but this, um, in, just in honor of Thich Nhat Hanh, one of the practices he offered, and some of you may be familiar with this, is, uh, is a practice of, of compassion. Practice of compassion for, it can be done in relationship to another, and I'd like to just offer it right now in relationship to ourselves. So just take a moment now if and maybe call up for yourself, maybe not the, the worst thing that you're you're struggling with, but just something something you feel uh, is not so easy to accept. Whether it's something today or in yourself. And just notice where you feel that in your body. Just wherever you feel that landing in your body, whether it's belly, chest, eyes. Just bringing your attention. Perhaps you can place your hand somewhere on your body, maybe your chest or belly or both. Just feeling that sense of touch, warmth. And I'm just gonna offer you the phrases that 
he offered. And if they, if the words don't work for you, you, you can, you can shift something that's similar. So his first phrase was, darling, I am here for you. We'll see if you can touch into that, that wish for yourself. I am here for you. And if, if that feels forced or inaccessible, maybe, maybe the word is just, I'm here. Just willing to meet it, whatever it is. Maybe it's just the very edge of it. The feeling in the body or the emotional tone. And if the story is running, I would come into your body. I'll come into the emotional tone underneath the story. So see if you can be with just the, the edge of that. Here for you. On the next phrase, I know you are there and I am very happy. I'm very happy to meet you. Darling, I know you suffer. I want to be there for you. Darling, I suffer. Please help. So I'll just go over those again. And whatever one lands for you, that's fine. So darling, I am here for you. Or simply, I'm here. I know you are there. I know you suffer. And I want to be there for you. Darling, I suffer. Please help. So even if there's just a small way we can touch into meeting whatever it is unresolved in your heart just to have that warm caring presence i'm here we don't need to fight with you with this experience i'm here you're saying this to yourself. And just letting yourself feel the rest of your body now. So maybe we're just letting that settle through now. And bringing into your awareness that just as you're doing this practice for yourself, so is everyone else in this community of practitioners 
here together. That we all have tender hearts that showing up for life takes patience, takes courage, and resting in that wise understanding of this human life with its 10,000 joys and sorrows, with its meeting of gain and loss and praise and blame and joy and sorrow. That we can show up with with that wise understanding. You know, this is this is how it is. These are these are the conditions. And can we rest in that freedom of awareness? That freedom of presence, that non-clinging, infinite abiding. What happens when we stop fighting with life? When we stop the war inside? It seems to me that no matter how much we understand these characteristics of life that spoke about this reality of impermanence and unsatisfactoriness and no abiding self, that without compassion, We can't meet those things. Compassion is is born of that understanding and we can also apply it to that understanding. So with that, I'd like to read another poem that, um, or parts of it anyway, that um, some of you also may be very familiar with. It's from a poet named Naomi Shahib Nye. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go, so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow 
as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day, only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I who you've been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. It is only kindness that makes sense anymore. So thank you for listening. Let's just sit together just for a minute before we go for a walking. We all beings live with wisdom and compassion. So it's time for a walking practice now. And, you know, if you found that, uh, again, I said, as I said, we'll do a, a guided practice this evening. But if you found that useful, you know, when you do your walking, you know, you might stop and just bring your hand to your heart or your belly. Just take a moment to generate some of that kindness or compassion and bring that into your walking. It's fine if you're not drawn to that. Just carry on with your walking. So we'll come back again at um, quarter of five and... Uh, some of us will be going into small groups then. Just we can all come back at uh, 4.45. See you then. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.